Hi, welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast, where we attempt to equip people for kingdom release on the air. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. I want to dive in. We're going to finish our series in Nehemiah um, today because next week is our grand opening. We'll start a brand new series next week. But I want you to think about when you were a kid. Some of you, that wasn't very long ago. Some of you, that memory has long since lapsed, and it's, it's a figment of your imagination. But think about when you were a kid. And do you remember, like, feeling like I could be anything I want to be? Do you remember feeling that way? Do you ever remember feeling like it would be great if I would become this or that thing, you know? And people would ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? What were some of the things? Just shout them out. What were some of the things you wanted to be when you grew up? A lumberjack. What else? Over here. A vet. What else? The ice cream man. I love it. What else you got? A teacher, an adult. Anything else? A musician. Jerry wanted to be Michael Jackson. I mean, what? <laughs> there's so many answers to this question, right? Because depending on the age you are, there's like uh, all these possibilities, right? Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut for a little while. Uh, and then when I was a kid, you know, a little bit later, I wanted to be a professional athlete. Anybody want to be a professional athlete? Like I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to be a professional basketball player. Do I look like a basketball player? No, I'm short and I'm fat and that just doesn't work. Uh, then I want to be a professional hockey player, a little bit better, right? You know, I mean, you know, the stocky guy can fight or something like that. Uh, but people would constantly try to impose their things on me. Did you, did you ever have that? You have people that are like, well, you're just going to grow up and be, right? And I felt like when I was growing up, what everybody was trying to push me to be was president. I'm not kidding. Like the people in my family were like, you're just going to grow up to be the president. You're, aren't you, aren't you going to be president when you grow up? And now that I'm old enough to actually be president, I re realize how terrible that would be. I mean, I, can you imagine over the last, I mean, handful of years, what it would be like to be president? But I think all of us like this idea that we can sort of dictate what we will be, right? Don't you like having that sort of control over your life and saying, well, this is what I will be. This is what I will become. And of course, as you get older, those options get smaller, right? Because you have a mortgage and you have kids and you have a spouse and then you have another mortgage and you have more kids. And so the options get limited. The older you get, the less diverse the options of what you could be. But we all like to believe that we could be whatever we want to be. I think as a church, we do the same kind of thing. I think we sort of like to believe that we could be whatever we want. And, and we, can, you know, we can sort of make this up as we go along. We can be whatever we want. And, and I think we, we like that idea. And in a lot of churches, that's the way it works, isn't it? In a lot of churches, like what we will be is sort of up for grabs, right? And who gets to dictate? 
Well, it's the one who's been there the longest, right? This is the person who decides what we will be. It's the one with the microphone. Uh, it's the loudest one. Still me. Uh, it, it, it's the most talkative one. Still me. Um, or, or, or it's the one who gives the most money. This is the one who decides what we will be. Or, uh, it, you know, it, it's whoever, whoever has the most power decides what we will be. But what we are and what we will be as a church really isn't up to us, is it? Biblically speaking, to be the people of God is actually already dictated to us what that means. What it means to be the people of God means that we get an identity that God decides and hands to us. And so when we choose to follow Jesus, we sort of get adopted into an identity. We get adopted into a mission that was already existent before we began. So we don't actually get to decide what we will be. And let me tell you why I'm digging in on this for a minute. Next week, there's going to be a lot of people who come here for the first time. There's going to be a lot more people sitting around you who are here for the first time. And it's a moment in our church's history where who we will be could be up for grabs, right? It's, it's a sort of, I, I described it in our staff meeting this week, that, that a grand opening is a sort of cultural hand grenade. Because you take the people who know who we are and what we are, and some of you are discovering that as you've been around a little bit, uh, but as you know who and what we are, we're going to be all outnumbered next week by a whole bunch of people who come with a whole bunch of other ideas. And sort of a grand opening is a cultural hand grenade that we're going to throw a whole bunch of ideas in. And before we get to that space, I believe it's important for us today to dig back in and remember who it is that God has said we are and what it means to be the people of God. And so today we're going to finish this series in Nehemiah. And as we look forward with all these first-time people to next week, there's a chance we could feel like our identity is up for grabs. And what I want to say today is that we want to be a people who are committed to God's presence. That's what it is to be the people of God. We want to be a people who are committed to God's presence. Whatever else people think we should be, we have been and I intend for us always to be a people who are committed to God's presence. And so that's the title of this message as we wrap up Nehemiah. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 10. So Holy Spirit, we do invite You to come. And God, we're so grateful that, that You choose to be among us. That by Your Spirit, You choose to live inside of us. That You choose to come among Your people. And what makes us a distinct people, God, is that You are here. And so, God, I pray that You would come as we open Your Word. Would You speak? I pray, God, that we would have an encounter with You that would radically alter the direction and the trajectory of our lives. God, that we would be a people who have been marked by Your presence, never to go backwards. Lord, would You fill me as I speak? I pray, God, that You would put power on this message, put Your words in my mouth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there are still some Bibles up in the front, or if you have a portable electronic device, 
Uh, I'm sure that you have the Bible app or you can get it. Um, We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 10. And some of you are like, wait a minute, we just did chapter 5 last week. Yeah, let me catch you up, okay? At the end of chapter 6, chapter 6, Nehemiah gets attacked by all these uh, opposition, external opposition. Last week we talked about internal opposition. Chapter 6, the, the, the people from the outside are opposing this project to rebuild the wall. And, and uh, Nehemiah puts off the opposition and he completes the wall in 52 days. And so that was the project he set out to do. And then in, in uh, chapter 8, Ezra reads the book of the law uh, aloud to the people that were again going to be God's people in the land. Now that we have the wall built around, we have, we have the temple functioning, we're going to be God's people in the land. And so Ezra chap, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra reads the law aloud, and as they hear the Word of God preached, as they hear the law of God expounded upon, they begin to obey what they hear. They say, we will be these people. And then in chapter 9, the Israelites gather to collectively confess sin and, and turn from their wicked ways. They, they begin to worship God. And if you read chapter 9, it actually is a very long, you could say it's a song, it's like, it's, it's a red uh, history of Israel up to that point. And the focus of the whole history is, God, you've been faithful even though we haven't. God, you've been faithful even though we haven't, right? And we can probably a lot of times relate to that. But they get to the end of chapter 9, and verse 38, it says this, in view of all this, in view of all the history, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. What they said is, because of the ways that God has been faithful, we will return to the covenant agreement God made with us long ago. Now that we're back in the land, now that we're operating in the temple again, we will return to the covenant that we made with God in the first place. And so what we're going to read today in chapter 10 is this covenant renewal. It's, it's this, we're committing to live with God again, and this is how it looks. So the beginning of part of chapter 10 actually is just the names of all the people who signed uh, this agreement. So we're going to skip down to verse 28. Beginning of verse 28, here's what we read. This is chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, And all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. And here's what they commit to. Verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts, and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. Verse 34, 
We, the priests and the Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring the house, to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and our herds and our flocks to the house of our God to the priests ministering there. Verse 37, Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God to the priest the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contribution of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. And here's how it ends. We will not neglect the house of our God. It's quite a commitment, isn't it? How many of you glazed over about verse 35? Anybody want to be real honest? Get you about that. You're like, man, they're committing to all these things, and I'm not really sure what's for lunch, what time do the Steelers play, all the things. I mean, I know I offended some people when I said Steelers. I get it. Um, I apologize. I'll repent later. Um, in the Old Testament, the people of God were were actually set apart because they were marked by God's presence. What made the people of God special was that the presence of God dwelt in the temple. When they got exiled, now the presence of God did not dwell in the temple. And one of the crises of faith that happened to the Israelites is they were like, well, who are we now that the presence of God is not among us? So when they come back, when they return from exile, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild this wall, And what was important was that God's presence would dwell among them. But we have a problem. They always had a problem. God's presence couldn't dwell among sinful people. And so the way God set up to deal with that was this sacrificial system where uh, animals would would be sacrificed. And the way that that would happen is it would create, it was created a whole bunch of jobs. Priests, Levites, all the, the people that get named in there who keep the temple functioning and so that the fire on the altar is never to go out. That's the whole point. So when they get back, they have to reestablish this system. And so that's what's happening here is they're, they're committing to reestablishing this system. And the way they begin, and the, thing that we, the first thing we can take away is that to be committed to God's presence is to be committed to God's presence in our relationships. Look again at verse 30. It says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Now, some of you will go, wait a minute. You mean you can't like marry a foreign person? Like, that, that seems a little bit odd. But in the Old Testament times, to marry someone else meant that we bring both of our gods into the house. They get an equal place in the house. And so to marry a foreigner would mean to marry their gods as well. And so the command of God was that people not marry outside of the people of God. 
because God did not want people to sort of mix their worship with other gods. And so the, the command was not to marry outside the nation of Israel because you're committed first to the God of Israel. Now, I imagine most of us could see that this could happen, right? If you're married, how many of the things that you do now did you sort of adopt from your spouse? As you think about that, right, there's a lot of things that you just sort of cave on after a while, right? Not everything's worth a fight. Some of you laugh, you're right. Because right away, as soon as you get married, I mean, when, I, when Jerry and I got married, one of the things we figured out was uh, that she folds socks wrong. <laughs> and I could not understand how somebody could grow up and fold socks wrong for their whole lives, right? Uh, I also learned that she didn't keep ketchup appropriately. In my house, ketchup belongs in the refrigerator, right? And at her house, I mean, maybe ketchup just didn't last really. How many of you, ketchup belongs in the refrigerator? See? See? <laughs> I'll pay for this later, I'm sure. Um, maybe in their house, ketchup didn't last long enough to actually need to be in the refrigerator. But here's the point. I don't fight over ketchup. At my house right now, ketchup is sitting on the table, even though ketchup belongs in the refrigerator. Here's the point. If you're married, you recognize everything's not worth a fight, right? You don't like fighting with each other all the time. And so you decide to compromise. Well, in the nation of Israel, what they didn't want to compromise on their God. And so if you marry someone who worships another God, what you find is that at some point there will be compromise. And so the command to the Israelites was you don't marry somebody from outside of the people of God. We could probably see that clear enough. But maybe we don't think about it in all of our relationships. Like how many of us, if you have really thought about the company that we keep, how many of us have actually thought, maybe I need to be careful about the friendships that I choose? It's probably not a thought most of us have, right? We all want friends, and so if anybody will be our friend, I have a friend. But God doesn't intend for us to just get in intimate, close relationship with everybody. I think a lot of times we don't think about the depth of connection that happens uh, when we engage in deep friendship with people. There's a quote that goes like this. It says, show me your friend's and I'll show you your future. Any of you know that you're probably going to be some summation of the five closest people to you? Have you realized that? That whatever the five closest people to you deem normal, you will deem normal. Wherever their lives are going, your life will go. That over a period of time, the company that you keep actually has an influence on the way that you live life. Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. I think a lot of times we would say, well, you know, I won't marry somebody who's not a follower of Jesus because I understand that that would compromise my faith in Jesus. So I get that, but maybe I don't think about it in my relationships. 
You know, we worship Jesus. We, we have a passion for more of Jesus in our lives. We come here. We have a, a great time. You know, the Lord is present. We love it. And then we go home and we can't figure out why our lives are not becoming more and more like Jesus. And when you look around the circle of friends that you keep, none of them encourage you to look at Scripture. None of them encourage you to pray. None of them ask you how it is that you're living life with Jesus. And we can't figure out why we show up next Sunday and we're not really different. We replug in and we do our thing again. We get all excited again. And the company that we keep the other six days of the week has more impact than an hour here. The relationships that we keep matter. They matter a whole lot. Now, here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is avoid everybody who's far from Jesus. That's what I'm not saying. Because our call is to lead people to relationship with Jesus. But the caution here is if you spend most of your time with people who don't follow Jesus, if you share most of your heart and most of your life with people who maybe will give you counsel from Dr. Phil and maybe will give you counsel from Oprah, you know, maybe it will give you a little bit of counsel from the Bhagavad Gita and that will help you a lot. And, you know, all of, you know, Dante's Inferno, there's some really good stuff in there. What you won't find is that you'll be closer to Jesus at the end. Yes, we pursue relationship with people who are far from Jesus, but the people we let see our heart, who, who we let walk with our heart, need to be people who are going where we're going. Do you choose your friendships on purpose? Or do you just sort of drift in and out of your friendships? I need to keep going. I'll get, I can go on with that forever. So we want to be, we, you guys don't want me to. Uh, we want to be people who are committed to God's presence in our relationships. We also want to be people who are committed to God's presence in how we do business. Look at verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we will cancel all debts. You know, one of the things that made the Israelites different from all the people around is, is the fact that they refused to compromise on doing business on the Sabbath. Every seventh day, they just didn't do business. They refused. And so, you know, the reason they did this is because God didn't design human beings to operate constantly without stop. Some of you, that's the end of the message right there. Do you know God did not design you to work seven days a week, 365 days a year? God didn't make you to do that. And yet, do, do we look at our calendar? Have you ever looked at your calendar and been like, I haven't had a day off in weeks? Anybody really exhausted because you haven't had a day off in a really long time? God didn't design us to do that. And so the, the people of God recognized every seventh day God built it in that we ought not to do something productive. And so they, they would take the day off. And so God also commanded that every seventh year that the land would get a, a year off. And so if you think about the way this works, every seventh day people get a day off, they get a day of rest. And God said every seventh year the land gets a day off or a, a year off. 
And to engage in these commands meant that the Israelites did business differently than everyone else. They did business way different than everyone else. And what it meant was that the first consideration and how they do business is what does God think about this? Before we think about what we can make money-wise, before we think about how we can sell stuff, before we think about our business plan, what does God think about this? At the very beginning of all of our planning, we do everything with God in mind. Where does God's presence fit with how you and I do business? Like When you think about your work life, when you think about how you go about interacting with people, when you think about how you do business in the world, where does God's presence fall? I would bet for a lot of us, I won't point any fingers, maybe at myself, um, I would bet for a lot of us we're like, well, I do business, and then at the end I sort of go, well, God, did you like how I did that? Did you like how I did that? I, you know, I got, I got to take care of me first. Just think about how radical this ver- verse 31 is. We're not going to do any business on, on the Sabbath day or any holy day. I mean, much of the business world right now is trying to wring every ounce of productivity out of you. Do you know that? Some of you are like, I know. I haven't had a day off. If we could make, most of the business world, if they could make every day 30 hours instead of 24, they would, right? Walmart would be open like 48 hours a day. If they could create another day of the week, the business world would do so, and they would fill it with work. But verse 31 goes even further than that. It says, on the seventh year, we're going to let the ground sit idle and forgive all debts. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not considered probably a very sound business practice, right? To just, yeah, it's the seventh year. I know you owe me money, but I'll cancel the debt. These are commitments. These are are, 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 uh, commands born from God to set Israel apart in how they do business. So what sets us apart? What sets our, us apart in how we do business? You know, one of the things I've seen a lot of, and if you have one of these, I apologize in advance. One of the ways we try to set ourselves apart in business is we say, well, we're a Christian business, right? Right? Our, our business has little crosses on the checks so that when I hand a check to you, you go, you must be a Christian has Bible verses, right? If you have Bible verses on your checks, don't, don't write me an email. It has Bible verses on the checks, and we want to slip it in there that you know, we kind of go to church, I'm part of the church. You know? And what we're doing, I'm not saying these are bad things, but what we're doing is we're trying to say, will you trust me without me giving you a reason to? Will you give me a little bit of credibility for being a Christian even if I'm not? All these things do is put on a heightened awareness for people. As soon as you put, you know, you put the word Christian in your business, people go, we'll see. Hand somebody a check that has a a cross on it, and people kind of go, we'll see. But here's the deal. Martin Luther, uh, the father of one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, he put it like this. He said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. To be committed to God's presence in how we do business means that in every situation, our first thought is not about how to do business, but how to reflect God's presence in the situation. 
That's our first priority. When you engage in business with people, does honesty and and integrity come out? Or do you go, well, I'm a Christian, and I hope you know that that means I'll be honest and I have integrity. Does honesty and integrity come through? Does compassion come through? These are things that are markers of followers of Jesus. And if we just live a life that is constantly focused on the presence of God in every situation, we don't have to tell people we're a Christian. They just know. And then you get a chance to talk about why you do good business, why you have integrity. So we want to be committed to God's presence in our relationships and committed in how we do business. The last thing is we also want to be committed to God's presence with our resources. Look at verse 32. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts, and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops, and every fruit tree. The whole rest of this covenant renewal, the whole rest of the covenant renewal is about providing resources for the temple. It's about providing resources for the house of God. The people committed to providing funds necessary. They committed to providing the wood necessary. They committed to animal sacrifices. They committed to the first fruits for the, the priests and Levites. The whole rest of the chapter is aimed at providing resource for the house of God. The commitment was that worship of God is so important that the people would see to it that there was never a lack of resources. We live in a culture that makes an idol out of money and possession. The way you can tell is that when someone asks you for money or possessions, everybody gets just a little bit anxious just a little bit anxious. Even as I started this point, some of you were like, oh no, he's going to talk about money. Right? Some of you internally, you, you wouldn't own it. But you're like, if he starts talking about money in the church, God, I can't even anymore. Some of you even started rationalizing what you do with money. Didn't you? Like you started going... He's talking about money, and I, I, if he asks, I'm just going to tell him that I, I don't have enough, and, right? And I want to make a point that I haven't actually asked you for any money, or even how you deal with your money, and there's an indicator here if that is what happened in you. You may, been, you, know, be, you may have been like, well, let me formulate why this isn't a good passage to preach about money from, because Derek, this is the Old Testament, and you know, of course, we're New Testament people, and you know, the temple was old, and it's kind of outdated, so you really shouldn't preach about money from here. But I want to remind you that I haven't asked you to give any money to the church at all. But the fact that we have preemptive internal issues when money comes up points to something in our lives. You guys know who John Wesley is? John Wesley was uh, the, uh, the kind of the um, 
founder, maybe, I don't know, the, the guy that God used to start the Methodist movement in the 1700s. And he said this, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. The last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. Friends, I know something about you that you know about me as well. What I know is true of all of us is we willingly hand money to things that we think have value, don't we? Did anybody go to the Penn State game last night? Anybody go? All those people are still sleeping. But we willingly hand money to things that we think have value. How many of you love to hand money for coffee? You'll buy coffee, right? Man, that was the fastest. That was the fastest hand. You already had some this morning too, haven't you? That's how, that's how you got your hand up so fast. Right? Or, or like for me, right? Like I will willingly hand money for books because I think there's great value in reading. I think there's great value in education. We'll willingly hand money to go to the movies, right? Willingly hand money to go see the latest, I'm going to blow this, Marvel? Okay. That, all right. All right. That was, thanks. It's a little nervous there. Right? We'll willingly hand money for like a new car. We'll willingly hand money for a motorcycle. If you're looking for one, I have one to sell. Be willing. But we will willingly hand money over for things that we have value, that have value in our lives, don't we? And we won't bat an eye about it at all. And yet when we say, well, do you value Jesus? You're like, well, He does it for free. Right? We will gladly pay money for all these other things that have really high value, but we say, Jesus, you got to do it on nothing. Don't we? Like if we look at your bank statement, let's sit down, let's, you and me right now. Okay, we're going to just be, it's just you and me. Nobody else is here. We're sitting here looking at your bank statement. I can tell you what you value when I look at your bank statement. Can't we probably collectively land on what you value if we look at your bank statement? Like my bank statement says the clay cup, the clay cup, the clay cup, the clay cup. Green bean, green bean, green bean, and every Saturday night at Starbucks, um, right? And, I, and we, we could sit down and go, see, you, you kind of value coffee really highly. But I wonder if we looked at your bank statement, would we collectively land on an, an acknowledgement that you value Jesus? Will we land there? And for some of you, it would be like, yeah. I mean, right here. Here's all the things, all the kingdom things that I do with my money. Here's all the kingdom things. But for a lot of us, I think we might find that we don't actually value Jesus enough to put money into it. Do we value Jesus enough to be generous with our money? And everybody's like, that's rich. That's rich. The pastor's talking about giving money. I'll just remind you, I don't get paid by this church. When you give money to this church, I don't get paid. Jesus doesn't need your money for this mission. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus doesn't need your money? He has all the money at His disposal. He does not need your money. But you, for spiritual health, need to give it to Him. Because otherwise it will consume you internally. 
Your spiritual life can never go further than you're willing to be open-handed with what God has given you. And that includes money. Now that I've got everybody's attention. <laughs> Here's what I want to, how I want to wrap this up. They make all of these commitments, right? And we can make all of the commitments. We're going to be faithful to God in, in relationships. We're going to be faithful to God uh, in business and in resources. And yet, here's the, the thing about Scripture is it's really honest about humanity. If you flip back to, to chapter 13, Nehemiah goes away. I'm just going to read this and we'll wrap this up. Nehemiah goes away. Beginning of verse 4 of chapter 13 says this, Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. This was the enemy. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense and temple articles. And also the tithes of grain and new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contribution for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked for permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields after all this commitment. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? You remember the end of the statement in chapter 10. We will not neglect. Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. And he goes on and on and on. And when you get to the end of chapter 13, what you find is Nehemiah was this guy that God called to rebuild this wall. And there was so much momentum. And at the very end, you find Nehemiah all alone again, wishing that the people would have been faithful. The Bible is very clear about the, the ways that human beings fail. Friends, as we go forward, we could just decide we're going to make commitments to do all the right things. And I hope that we do. I hope that we're generous people. I hope that when new people come here next week, you all are very, very welcoming to these people. I hope that we're committed to doing kingdom things. But the reality is, if we think we can actually do it in our own strength and in our own power, we're deluding ourselves. At the end of Nehemiah, this is sort of like the end of the Old Testament, there's sort of this longing like, who can put this thing back together? Who can fix the mess that the people of God have made? And of course, that points us forward to how the New Testament begins, that Jesus come to rescue us from our own sinfulness. And as we surrender to Jesus, He puts His Spirit in us and enables us to walk as the people that the Old Testament could not walk at. Our hope, friends, is not in our ability to make commitments, our ability to make covenants. Our hope is in Jesus. And our hope is in the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release His kingdom in and through you today. 
for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.